Hey guys, you can open to Psalm 110. It's the psalm that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, I really did not deserve that whole game after me, so that was, that was very kind, so thank you for that. And uh, whoever put my location in the middle of the ocean, shame on you. That was, that was messed up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Psalm 110 is our text. Let me just read that to you. Uh, this is a psalm that praises Jesus for two big things. He is the king, uh, exalted, conquering Lord. The other thing that it praises about Jesus is that he is the priest forever. So not just any priest, but the priest forever. So two great things that this psalm exalts about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is king forever, conquering Lord. And the other thing is that he is the eternal priest. So let me just read this psalm to you. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That verse that I just read to you is the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. So verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. Scepter is just an item symbolizing authority uh, as, as a king would have from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So that's the second thing that the psalm is really exalting about Jesus Christ is that he's a priest forever, uh, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Then he will drink from the brook by the wayside. And therefore, he will lift up his head. Any, basically, any introduction to psychology textbook that you'll pick up will mention the Stanford Prison Experiment. There's this experiment that was conducted in 1971 by a psychology professor in Northern California at Stanford University, uh, Philip Zimbardo, and he wanted to basically study the psychological effects of prison life on correction officers as well as prison, uh, prisoners. And so he put out an ad over the summer, paid $15 a day, which in 1971 was a good amount of money, put out an ad uh, about this experiment that he was hoping to run at the university. Uh, 70 people responded. Uh, pretty quickly, they ended up selecting 24 students, and 12 of these students were randomly selected to play the role of the guard, the correction officer. 12 of those were then selected to play the role of a prisoner uh, in this uh, makeshift, real-life kind of simulation of a prison in the basement of the Stanford University Psychology Lab Department. So he basically gutted a a couple of classrooms out, turned it into like these prison cells, and it was a two-week simulation they wanted to study what, is it, what are the psychological effects that you know, this kind of environment produces on a person's mental well-being. Well, what they found out was that the guards, the students playing the role of the guards, they, after about a few days, they pretty much forgot that they were in the middle of an experiment and were quite literally abusing the prisoners. And it was huge controversy. They made a huge documentary out of this. Millions of people have watched this thing. Uh, but it just spoke to this innate 
uh, kind of human nature in us where we, if we're elevated to a certain position of power, kind of have this level of anonymity to us and we can kind of do whatever we want, uh, that we can so quickly abuse power to hurt other people rather than help them. And so it was a two-week simulation. Day six, they had to cancel the whole thing uh, because these prison guards, like I said, they were just abusing these prisoners and it was really messed up. And it just speaks to like how power is so easily abused. And I think we even relate to that at a micro level. I mean, you know, behind a computer screen or behind a cell phone or behind a video game. You know those kids in school, in high school, that, you know, maybe they're really quiet, they're the nerdy kid. And then behind the computer screen, they're a totally different character. My little brother, he used to be kind of shy and quiet. And then he played Roblox. All of us, when we go home from school, we play Roblox. You guys know that game, Roblox? So, so we play Roblox. And you know how they have the Robux that you can use to buy things? Uh, it was really hard to acquire those things to get, like, new characters and clothes and whatnot. Uh, my brother figured out this code, hack. So he got, like, millions of Robux. And he was, like, the legend. Everybody loved my brother, and I, like, hated it. And I tried to figure out what's the secret, but he didn't tell us. But he had this immense power just suddenly given to him, and he was a totally different person. And it was just incredible to see that, how little bit of power in the hands of somebody who seems otherwise harmless uh, suddenly is a new personality. And I thought that was quite incredible. Uh, and I think it's for that reason, in the history of Israel, the offices of the king and the office of the priest were purposefully set apart. If a person was serving as a king, they were not also serving as a priest. There was a separation of powers. It's kind of similar to our U.S. government. Uh, We have the legislative branch. We have the executive branch. We have the judicial branch. We have this intentional separation of powers that the founding fathers implemented because they recognized this innate potential for people to corrupt power if they have too much of it. And so they have the separation of powers. Even John Calvin, that dead, really important guy in Reformed theology, very important to Christianity, he even praised this idea of the separation of powers. And so we slowly drifted away from a monarchy where we have a single person ruling as a sovereign to now something of a democracy or a republic where we have people having the power who then elect bodies or representatives that rule on behalf of everybody. So we've seen a shift even in that sense Why? Because of this potential to abuse power for selfish gain uh, to the expense of other people. And so that's why, in the history of Israel, all the kings would come through the tribe of, do you guys know by any chance? Judah, that's right. And then all the priests would come through the line of what? Levi. Good job. Yeah, you guys know this. So you have the two separate lines. That's not arbitrary. That's actually intentional, designed to keep these two offices separate so they're they're not blending together. And you even know, like if you you read your Bible, which all of you do, obviously, uh, if you look at any king, even individually these kings, you'll see that it's it's pretty often that you read this refrain that the king so-and-so did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? And it's a breath of fresh air when you read that the king did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's a breath of fresh air. You don't often read that. So you think of Saul, for instance. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel, prophet, anointed Saul to be king, okay? And then he gave him a very clear directive. You are to kill, completely obliterate, annihilate all of the Amalekites because this people group tried to prevent Israel from leaving Egypt to the promised land. And so God wanted to render justice and judgment upon them And so he said, you need to remove them completely, destroy everything, don't leave any sheep, oxen, anything alive, everything needs to be killed. 
And as you guys know, you've read this story, Saul didn't quite obey that. He obeyed most of it. He did kill a lot of the people, but he killed all the the wives and children, all that stuff. But he didn't kill the best of the sheep and the oxen, and he didn't kill King Agag. So it wasn't complete, wholehearted obedience. Even in the text, it says he was unwilling to destroy them because of the selfish, selfish interests that he had. And then when confronted by prophet Samuel, he cleverly reinterpreted his disobedience as a kind of obedience. He says, oh no, the people, they brought them back. So he blames it on the people rather than taking responsibility. He says, no, the people, they just brought these things back. And oh, you, you know what, Samuel, we actually want to offer it as a sacrifice to your God. So it sounds very pious. He disobeyed. God says, I'm going to remove the kingdom from you effectively for disobeying me because he wanted a wholehearted devotion. He did not want lip service. He didn't want a guy just saying God's name. He wanted complete wholehearted devotion. That's what he wanted. And that's why he says he wants obedience more than sacrifice. So you see even the king office being uh, perverted and, and abused and corrupt. And then you look at the priestly office. It's not so squeaky clean over there either, right? You got priests who are not following God's law completely. You have even wicked priests. Like you take the priest Eli, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were doing some really wicked things that I can't even say on stage right here. Things to women who are coming to worship, uh, things in terms of stealing money and sacrifices. They were doing some really, really wicked things. And so the level of corruption is intense. And so you can understand why these two offices in the history of Israel never blended together. And when they did, the consequences were so dire. And we actually have an illustration of somebody who was a king, who actually the text says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But then at one point in his life, he became proud in his heart, and he assumed wrongfully the role of a priest, and God judged him severely. It was King Uzziah. He was made king at age 16. He reigned for 52 years. Uh, He was an incredible guy. I was just reading this yesterday just to rehearse it. And it's incredible, this guy Uzziah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, verse 4. This is 2 Chronicles 26, if you want to jot that down and read it later. 2 Chronicles 26, again, king at the age of 16. What do you expect from a guy like that? He's a high schooler. Come on. King, 52 years reigning. What did he do? He sought the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, verse 5, God caused him to prosper. Verse 6, he warred against the Philistines. He broke down walls, not of just one nation, not of just two, but multiple nations. He broke down their walls. He built cities. He built fortresses. He built towers. He built turrets. He was, you know, he he possessed an incredible ingenuity when it came to military warfare and defense. He even built like an engine to automatically shoot uh, arrows very long distances and large stones to throw them very large distances to their enemies. He was an incredible mind. Okay, this guy Uzziah, and it was because God was causing him to prosper. He built towers, he built cisterns, that's just wells. And then verse 8 says he became famous. So his name spread in all the land. He became very powerful, okay? Uh, Verse 11, he had a huge army of 307,500 people headed by 2,600 valiant warriors. Uh, Really incredible stuff here. He made shields, he made spears, he made helmets, body armor, bows, sling stones. I mean, this guy was relentless. And then verse 16 is the ominous verse. It says, but when he became powerful, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly 
and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He went into the temple to offer incense. That was a duty specifically restricted to the priests. Okay, so then priest Azariah and 80 other very courageous priests, they come out and they say, King Uzziah, you cannot do that. That is a job only reserved for the priests. What are you doing? And he gets angry that the priests would dare confront him. I mean, he's a big shot at this point. He's very powerful. He's famous. And it almost immediately, God strikes his head with leprosy. He doesn't know that. It's on his forehead. He can't see it. The priests see that, and they immediately usher him outside of the temple. When he notices it, he gets scared. They put him in a house, and he remains there until he dies, and his son becomes king. Sad downfall for this guy, because he attempted to assume the role of a priest when he was a king, and they were never to be blended together. Again, I'm belaboring this for the simple point of just showing you that power, as I believe God, God understood this and the people understood this, so easily corrupted when it's in the hands of the wrong person, and so they were separated by the wisdom of God. But now, when you come to Psalm 110, for the first time in Israel's history, this is a monumental moment. For the first time in Israel's history, these two offices come together in one man, Jesus Christ. And so when people say, hey, just exalt Christ, make much of Christ, that's an easy thing to do because he's the most powerful man who ever lived. And what's so awesome is that with all that power, he never acted corruptly. He never made a name for himself. He always did the will of the Father. He was so kind and generous and humble. And he laid down his life to save sinners. It's an amazing thing. And he even says, I did not come to be served but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. It's incredible. We petty human beings, with our petty little power, we are so easily proud in our hearts when really, really everything that we have is a gift from God. And Jesus, who created everything, who is eternal, who is God, he did not exalt himself. And then God raised him up at the proper time. And that will help you understand the structure of Psalm 110, actually. Because look back at Psalm 110 for a moment. This is an intra-Trinitarian conversation between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. It's called in theology or in, you know, in literary studies, they call it a royal psalm or an enthronement psalm. Basically, the idea is that a king or a courier or a messenger, they're giving a message to a king who's sitting on a throne. There's a bunch of people around, and it's a message basically exalting the king for some reason. In this case, it's the fact that he's king and priest. But this is a little bit different because David is kind of eavesdropping into this intra-Trinitarian conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, and that's a key phrase, we'll look at that in a moment, my Lord, he refers to Jesus as my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay? This is the key. You really got to get this in terms of timing. So the type of the psalm, it's a, it's a royal psalm, it's an enthronement psalm. Okay? This is exalting a person, Jesus Christ. Okay? as king and priest, the timing is actually also very important. There's so much you can extract from verse one. The timing is also very important because he's saying, sit at my right hand. Now, if you compare this text to Hebrews, turn there for just a quick moment, please. Hebrews chapter one and look at verse three because you'll get a little bit of a glimpse into the timing that's, uh, that's going on here, okay? Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Okay, speaking of Jesus Christ, uh, the author of Hebrews, he says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, that is God the Father, 
and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now listen to this. When he had made purification of sins, internalize that. When he had made purification of sins, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does that show you? He is sitting down. This is after the incarnation. This is after he lived the perfect life that we could never live. This is after he died the death that we can never die. This is after he is buried for three days and then resurrected miraculously and then ascends to heaven. It is when he ascends to heaven after accomplishing redemption of mankind, after paying for all of man's sins, then he ascends to heaven and God the Father almost as a gift. This was the joy that was awaiting him. This was the joy set before Christ that allowed him to endure. He then says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so this is not Jesus sitting in a spiritual lazy boy. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the next phase in the mission. So you can understand Christ's mission in two phases. Phase number one is his mission to save and redeem. That he did. And marvelously, very humbly. Phase number two is Jesus's mission to judge. And so the overwhelming theme of this passage is quite gory. Uh, it's uh, judgment. He's going to come back as a conquering king. No more Mr. Nice Guy. He's going to come back, not, you know, hair part down the middle, nice guy, humble guy, you know, everything. Of course, he's still humble, obviously. But he's going to come back bringing judgment. All those people who did not bow the knee, all those people who said, yeah, yeah, I know that Christianity thing, but yeah, I'll wait on that later. You know, I got, I got other things I need to do. I got women or guys to pursue. I have jobs to try to pursue. I have grades I need to focus on. I have school, and that's, that's busy right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll worry about this Jesus thing later. I've, I'm only a high schooler. I have tons of time. Yeah, those people who don't submit to Christ, and it's too late, he comes back. You're his enemy because if you are not for him, you are against him. And the judgment that he will usher or bring against you is very profound. It's very severe. It's gory. It's, it's terrible. So in the second phase, he comes as a judge. First phase, he came as a savior. Okay? Now, what I want to do as we're trying to unpack this psalm is Jesus, I told you, this is the most quoted psalm in the Old Testament. Verse 1 is actually the most quoted verse in the entire Old Testament. Uh, verse 4, the, the, the verse about his uh, eternal priesthood, there's like three whole chapters in the book of Hebrews devoted as a commentary to just that one verse. This is obviously like a very significant chapter, okay? And there's no way, you, can, you have to give me grace here, there's no way I could unpack all of this. I'm just going to give very, like 30,000 foot fly over here. When Jesus, he actually quotes this psalm in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus quotes this, he uses it as a polemic against the scheming Pharisees and Sadducees and disciples of Herodians. He uses this as a kind of polemic, as a, as a corrective to show who he really is, okay? In Matthew chapter 22, and I'll summarize it so we don't have to go there right now. Matthew chapter 22, lots of people were trying to scheme and trap Jesus in his words, okay? He gave a parable about a wedding feast, okay? He, he gave a parable about how the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who, who, goes, uh, to, who, who gave a wedding feast to his, for his son. Nobody came to the wedding feast. Uh, they despised the son, Jesus, and it's a metaphor, obviously. So God the Father, he sent his son, Jesus. Nobody really cared about the guy. That He was rejected. He was scorned by men. He was mocked, okay? Uh, and so now these, these Pharisees, they're trying to trap him. So they send their disciples and some of the Herodians, and then they bring a coin to him. And they say, okay, should we, should, we, uh, should we pay the tax to Caesar? 
And Jesus answers marvelously and silences them. Sadducees then come, you know, they deny the resurrection. So they bring another tricky riddle to him. Jesus answers that one beautifully, silences them. When the Pharisees hear that the Sadducees have been silenced and the disciples of the Pharisees have been silenced and the Herodians have been silenced, nobody could conquer this man's wisdom, okay? He was a humble man. He was, you know, he had a big following. His words were so wise. Nobody can compete with it. So now the Pharisees come in. They're trying to trap him in his words. And they ask him a question. They say, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Again, he answers it perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And now while the Pharisees are together, he then asks them a question based on Psalm 110. And he says, you know that Messiah guy? Whose son is he? What do you say about him? And then he, sa- he quotes Psalm 110.1, and they, they, they answer it correctly. They say, oh, well, yeah, the Messiah is going to be the son of David, okay? He then quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, and it says, the Lord said to my Lord. And he says, well, why is David, who is speaking in the Spirit, Psalm 110, why does he refer to David's son as his Lord? Okay? So he says, the Lord said to my Lord. And this is funny because the Pharisees probably memorized this passage. It just goes to show you, you can read the same passage tons of times and miss something so obvious. Jesus says, you recognize that the Messiah is going to be a son. Good job. You recognize that he's a man. Good. That he's the son of David. Wonderful. What you didn't recognize is that he's Lord. And everybody is silenced at that point. You know why? Because they're good with a man. They're good with a, 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 a human savior. On a temporal level, they don't want to submit to him as Lord. Because what that means is that they have to submit to him and all his teachings, and they didn't want to do that. He was actually Lord. He is Lord. I was thinking of Peter's confession even in Matthew 16, a couple chapters before Jesus quotes this passage. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay? And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So in one statement, he affirms both the sonship and the deity of Jesus Christ. You are the son of the living God, you know, deity, okay? So he recognizes both. Jesus then says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And on this statement, your name is Peter, means Petra, small rock. On this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. That's the foundational confession of the church, the fact that Jesus is Lord. And that means something. It was the thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the disciples and the Herodians did not want to submit to. And it's the fact that if he is Lord, that means they have to submit to him as Lord. They have to obey what he says. Jesus even says to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It means something if he's your Lord. You can't claim to know Jesus if you don't actually follow him. It means something to actually call him Lord. And I think you can see this really marvelously illustrated by the response. Give me a second here. You can see this kind of awesome, like very marvelously illustrated in verse 3. You can see the response of the people to the Lordship of Christ. So, overwhelming theme in Psalm 110 is that there's a lot of enemies. Most of the people we can, we can assume, they're going to reject the Lordship of Christ, and then he's going to bring judgment. But then in verse 3, we see a number of people, 
probably relatively few in number, who are wholeheartedly devoted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3 for a moment. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Your people, so the people committed to you, they will volunteer freely. Literally, it's this word that means a free will offering. They're giving themselves completely to Jesus Christ. They will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. It's actually the most cryptic verse in this psalm, but it's actually the most beautiful because these people, they're not being forced. They're not being manipulated. God or Jesus is not forcing them. By their own volition, by their own will, by their own love and commitment to Jesus Christ, they're coming and serving wholeheartedly. That's the picture. It's really motivating just to see that. You know, once in a month, you know, we have a men's meeting. All the shepherds of our Bible study, they'll meet together. So you have Esai and Larry Brown and Tim Brenner, and uh, we got Angel Hernandez, and we got all these guys, Caden and Ben. And it's one of the highlights of my times because when I'm around these guys, and they're just so on fire for Jesus, they're wholeheartedly devoted to him, that does something to me. It shakes me to the core in a way that I can't even describe sometimes. The week might have been a struggle, and I go to one of those morning little men's meetings, and there's something about their energy and their resolve that they bring to the table collectively that just motivates me in a way that I can't even describe to you. There's something so cool about this picture of this this army of Jesus Christ. They're so wholeheartedly committed to him. He's not forcing them. They are completely devoted to Christ. Uh, there's a, I don't, I'm not a big comic book reader, but uh, there's a 1998 comic uh, called 300 by Frank Miller. Uh, it's based on, it's like a fictionalized retelling of uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, Greco-Persian War. Uh, they turned it into a movie called 300, so maybe you're more familiar with that. And there's a, there's a scene that I really like in that movie uh, and, and that comic uh, where there's the, the Spartans, okay? You have the Arcadians, led by Daxos, and then you have Xerxes and the Persians. And Xerxes, this king, he wants to conquer all the nations. He wants to subjugate everyone. Uh, He wants to remove their sovereignty from them. Uh, And the Spartans, of course, they don't want to be slaves. They want to be free men. And so they're going to fight. Word of their resolve to fight spreads around. The Arcadians hear about this, and they decide we're going to also fight. And so they go onto the warpath. Daxos, the leader of the Arcadians, he sends his army of, you know, who, who knows how many, but a, a, as many men as he can gather. They're going on the warpath, and then they cross paths with Leonidas, who is the commander of the Spartans. He only brings, as you can guess from the, the title, 300 men. Uh, and Daxos is visibly uncomfortable. He feels like he's been duped. He feels like he's been tricked. He's like, we're going to fight Xerxes, and he's like one of the most powerful people ever, and you brought only 300 men? What are you doing? So he feels, in a way, cheated. And then this is the most epic part, okay? You guys probably may may recognize this. Okay, then Leonidas, he then points to one of the Arcadians. He says, what is your profession? And he says, I'm a copper, sir. He points to the next Arcadian. He's like, what is your profession? In a very awesome voice. "Uh, What is your profession? And then he says, oh, I'm a sculptor. Then he asks a third person, what is your profession? And he says, oh, I'm a blacksmith, okay? Epic scene ever. I'm afraid to butcher it. (laughs) And then he turns around. And he, and he says to all the Spartan armies, he's like, Spartans, what is your profession? And they all, just, they all give this like very terrifying bellow, a roar of like, oh, 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 and it's incredible. It's just, it's just awesome. Like your heart just melts in your chest. Like this is awesome, you know? And then he says, don't ruin it, don't ruin it. And then he turns around to, the, to, his, to his friend Doxos and he says, see, old friend, I brought more men than you did. 
Because these 300 men, though they were few in number, they, will, they were wholeheartedly committed. They were fully passionate about this war. They were going to fight. They were going to give it his very all, okay? And that's kind of the picture I see in verse 3. These troops who follow Christ, they're wholeheartedly committed to him. They're not holding anything back. It is not a half-hearted Christianity. It is complete and utter devotion to Christ. I think of Paul, like in Philippians 2, he instructs fellow believers, those of you who have been saved, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And then he says, don't complain, don't grumble, okay? And then he says, then you'll shine as stars in the black sky in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. You'll, you'll shine. If you're not complaining, you're not grumbling like everybody, everybody does, you know this, you'll shine as a star. And then he says, my labor will not be in vain if you do so. But he says, even if I have to pour myself out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm happy to do it. I will be glad and I will rejoice. What's the picture there? It's Paul, when he serves his people, he pours his heart out as a drink offering. What does that mean? It means there's nothing left. He gives all of himself. In Philippians chapter 3, he rehearses his testimony in the first six, seven verses. And then in verse 12, he says, I press on. And then I'm wanting to ask Paul, how are you pressing on? How are you motivated? Because I struggle, I'm going to be honest, with motivation. All of us probably struggle with motivation from time to time. And I'm asking Paul, like, how are you so motivated? What's making you press on so much, Paul? And he says, I press on. Here's the reason. Philippians 3, verse 12. So that I may lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. It's the gospel that motivates Paul. Christ laid hold of him. When he was in the midst of his sin, when he was persecuting the church, he was killing Christians, he was dragging them and destroying them, putting them in prison. He was relentless in his persecution and his rebellion against Christ. In the midst of his sin, in the midst of his hatred against Christ, Jesus graciously saved Paul. He did not deserve it. In his grace and love towards Paul, he saved him. And Paul was very acutely aware of that. And he couldn't get over the fact, Jesus, why would you save me? I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst. Why would you save me? Maybe you feel that way today. Some of you, in patterns of sin, you're like, oh, there's no way Christ would save me. I'm just, I'm too wicked. Look at Paul. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. He was killing Christians for crying out loud. Jesus saved him. And his life was completely transformed. He couldn't get enough of Christ. And he says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. In Romans 12, that's expanded to all of believers that we are to be living sacrifices. In view of the mercy and grace of Christ, we are now to offer our own lives as living sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices in the way they did in the Old Testament, obviously, but now our lives are to be sacrifices to Christ. Why? Because of all that he accomplished. Jesus in Psalm chapter 110, he is presented as two things. He is the exalted, conquering Lord and King. He's also the eternal priest. He saved us. The Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament Levitical priesthood was deficient because it couldn't remove our sins completely. They offered sacrifices time and time and time again. The priests in Hebrews chapter 10, they're described as standing every day, offering sacrifices that cannot take away sins. Jesus, in his offering of his own life, actually takes away sin. It's incredible. His life, dying on the cross, actually takes away sin. 
And therefore, he sits. Verse 1 of Psalm 110. Therefore, he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And therefore, we have peace. Therefore, I look at verse 3 and I see this incredible resolve of these troops and these soldiers following after Christ, and it makes complete sense to me. In holy array, look at the end of verse 3. They are as the, they are as the womb of the dawn, as youth, as the dew, the holy attire. I mean, if you're going to see somebody very important, the president, you know, I, I, I shy away from saying President Trump or Biden now because it's so polarizing. But uh, if you're going to see somebody very impo- important, you probably dress a certain kind of way, you know? And it reflects your kind of heart attitude towards the occasion or the person. And that's the picture here in verse 3, okay? Now, let me just backtrack in all of this. I think it's pretty clear to you guys that what Jesus was trying to teach these scheming Pharisees about who he is is clear to you. You guys are not confused about that, right? He's Lord. That demands something of you, your submission. Okay, good and clear. Okay, now I just want to talk about what these terms mean, just very generally, okay? You're, you're hearing these terms king. You're hearing this ter- these terms priest. I imagine as a high school student, uh, you don't use the word king or we don't talk about kings, even in our culture very often, unless maybe you see it in a movie or you read about it in a history book. Uh, but king, just so you understand, because that's, that's what his first office here is, uh, the king is essentially somebody who leads, he protects, he instructs, he even disciplines, uh, he imparts the law, he teaches us, gives us wisdom, and then in response, what, what are we supposed to do? Okay, if he's our king, and he should be your king, if he's your king, then as his subject, as his slave, you are to listen to him, you're to obey him, you're to submit to him, you're even to worship him, okay? You're to praise him. That's what it means for Jesus to be your king. If he's your king, it means you're submitted to him. Okay? It's one thing to say Jesus is king. I love that Kanye West put that album, Jesus is king. That's awesome. It's one thing for Jesus to be king. It's another thing for Jesus to be your king. Okay? Is he your king? Okay? Priest, or let me, before I move on from that point really quickly, uh, how am I doing on time? Okay, I got to wrap up here. Uh, when it comes to, let me, let me jump to the priest then here. So when it comes to priest, a priest is somebody who represents, okay? King is somebody who's ruling. A priest is somebody who represents, again, not a word we use frequently, but I just want to show you three great truths very quickly. The new oath that we have, or I'll I'll consolidate all of this into one to to honor the time here. Uh, Notice verse four, okay? I would be remiss not to spend a little bit of time there. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's different from the old covenant in one sense because his sacrifice actually takes away sin. I did mention that. But why that's so good news for us is that when you face temptation, when you face sin, we can keep coming back to him. If you're a believer, you never need to feel discouraged. I think Satan, he really rejoices when he's able to make you feel discouraged and maybe you're paralyzed. You can't even pursue righteousness anymore because you're so wrapped up in your sin. One of the beautiful things about Christ is he paid for all of our sins, past, present, future. If he's your Lord, he's paid for all of your sins. And so even when you sin, you can come to him confidently, confess your sin, repent, and follow after him, and he will receive you. It's a new covenant in the sense he loves you. You don't have to warm up to him. When you sin, you don't have to feel like, oh, maybe I'm not a son or daughter of Christ anymore. He loves you. If you are his, if he's paid for your sins, he is your father. You are his son or daughter. Even when you sin, you can come to him. It's like a parent-child relationship. Even if the child disobeys, the parent still loves You just need to think, when you think of Psalm 110, king and priest, the two are marvelous, incredible amount of power, all consolidated in this one person, Jesus Christ. And the connection between the two is that if Jesus is your king, but not your priest, if he doesn't save you from your sins, that's bad news. That's you under the law. 
you're in trouble. But if Jesus is your priest and he's redeemed you of all your sins, and now he's your king, and now you can follow his law, he can empower you to obey, and that's good news. That's the gospel. Jesus as your king and priest, that is wonderful gospel news. Let me end very quickly on this illustration that I learned from a mentor of mine. Uh, he told about this, uh, king, this kingdom where the, with a king and the chicken thief, okay? So in this kingdom, it's an imaginary story here, hypothetical, uh, the, the currency for buying things was uh, selling chickens, okay? KFC, there you go. I, I have KFC on my mind for some reason. So the currency is, is chickens, okay? In this kingdom, where, which depended upon the selling of chickens and buying of chickens, uh, they were going missing, okay? And uh, the people complained to the king, and they said, King, chickens are going missing. Help us. And then the king said, if we catch this thief and he doesn't turn himself in, we're going to beat him 20 lashes. Okay? But chickens keep going missing. And so the king is angry. He's like, okay, I'm going to raise the penalty to 50 lashes. If you don't turn yourself in and we find out that chickens continue to go missing, you're going to receive 50 lashes. We're not going to hold back a single lash. Still, unsurprisingly, chickens kept going missing. They kept going missing. The king, at this point, was very, very enraged. And he said, I'm going to raise the penalty to the highest penalty, and that's 100 lashes. And nobody has received 100 lashes and lived to see the day. So essentially, if you receive this penalty, you're pretty much dead. You have one more chance to turn yourself in and to be spared of these lashes. And if you don't, and we catch you, you are going to receive every last stroke. Well, the servants actually find who this king is, or this uh, chicken thief is. And they were trembling, Turns out the thief was his mom, okay? So now, it's a little bit of a tricky situation here, okay? Because if he shows mercy to his mother, then he has, in a sense, scorned justice. He's made a mockery of justice. Whereas on the other hand, if he shows justice and unleashes the tundered lashes on his own mother, then people would say, oh, well, he's not very merciful. Where is his kindness? Where is his grace? So on the day of judgment, he says, tie her to the mast. Everybody's gathered together. The king is up enthroned on his seat, and he, he uh, instructs his two executioners, you are to give every last whip, all hundred. Do not spare a single one, or that punishment will fall on your head. Then he says, but wait, one more thing. He stands up from his throne. He removes his robe, from, steps down from his diocese, wraps his arms around his mother, then looks at the executioner and says, now beat the thief. Jesus Christ, fully God, became a man, lived the perfect life. We all deserved hell and judgment. If Jesus judged us right now, we'd all deserve hell. No question about it. Jesus lived the perfect life, and in our place, he died. So that all you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're saved. It's incredible. You're saved of every single sin. You're forgiven completely of every sin. If you just believe... That's all we're asking is just believe. And if you don't believe, this judgment will fall upon you, I promise you. And you will deserve every last bit of judgment. All you do is believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his perfect life and resurrection. Trust in him to save you from your sins. And you are forgiven of all of your sins. All of you face guilt. All of that is washed clean if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of life and the gift of your son and the gift of new life in your son. I pray that you would cause high school students in this room to convert, to, to give their lives to you, to trust in you, Lord, and to be saved from their sins and those who are believers to be encouraged by these 
two roles that you play, not for your own selfish gain, but for our good and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.